How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. The purpose for this is to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the word that when Scripture says that when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit, we're walking according to the sin nature, and that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. So we have time to give everybody the opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship through confession of sin to God the Father and silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have this opportunity to come before your throne of grace this evening to recognize that we are who we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because of your grace, that all that we have is due to your grace, and that you have given us everything that's required for life and godliness. We're not missing out on anything. We have the indwelling and filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We have a completed canon of Scripture And so it is up to us to avail ourselves of the teaching of your word so that God the Holy Spirit can use that in our lives to transform us from faith to faith, from saving faith to sanctifying faith as we advance towards spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that you might encourage us that uh, through God the Holy Spirit that so often we face uh, things in life that are roadblocks, speed bumps, that slow us down or cause us discouragement. We need to redirect our thinking uh, back to you and back to your word. And we live in an era when there are so many uh, things that seem very threatening on the horizon, from economic situations to military situations, immigration, uh, politics, uh, various things that are happening that seem that our culture is unraveling. And yet, Father, we are the ones with the truth. We're the ones who have the only basis for hope and optimism because our hope is not built on on the circumstances of life but on the eternal realities as taught in your word. And we pray that you might get, challenge our thinking this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 14, and we are studying on the issue of what's usually referred to or often referred to as doubtful things as it is uh, translated in Romans 14.1, but actually the Greek there is really talking about things that relate to individual opinions. And this means you're talking about issues in life that are not specifically defined or addressed by the Word of God. And there are many different things, as I pointed out uh, last time, there are many different areas of life, um, usually cultural application, that have been deemed sinful by different people, different religious groups, different pastors and seminaries. And uh, usually we think of things related to the use of alcohol, the use of of tobacco. We also uh, see people who you you can't play cards and be a Christian. You can't go to movies and be a Christian. You can't watch TV and be a Christian. In some circles you can't do anything, including watch sports on a Sunday afternoon, because that's violating what they think is the Sabbath. 
all kinds of different taboos that have been developed over the years in terms of, of Christianity, that Christians don't do these things. I, I ran into this in one of the worst ways, most extreme ways in my experience, was the very first church I ever uh, I ever candidated at after I was out of seminary. It was a Bible church in Opelousas, Louisiana. And if you know anything about Louisiana, you know that Opelousas is right in the heart of Cajun country. And it was quite an interesting experience. The parsonage looked like it had been cobbled together from leftover parts from different building projects. The master bedroom had four different patterns of wallpaper, all of which clashed with the floral, flocked, mirror-type wallpaper that was in the master bathroom that you could see through the door. Carpet differed from room to room, looked like all of the cabinetry was made from uh, leftover le- leftovers from building uh, mobile homes, high-quality construction material. So that was very interesting, but that wasn't the most interesting part. I went in to interview with the uh, pulpit committee for the deacon board, and there were five. And one of the men, if you remember, uh, who was it, Jerry? Oh, Jerry, I can't remember his last name now. What? No, no. Uh, Amos Moses. Who sang that? Jerry Reed sang Amos Moses, and there was a character in the song, had his left arm gone clean up to the elbow. He sat right in front of me. <laughs> and the his son was also a deacon and had to translate every question into Cajun French and every answer into Cajun French, which kind of slowed the process down. But that was it. very interesting. The first question was for me to explain my my philosophy of ministry. The second question was, would I preach against smoking, drinking, and dancing. We never got to the third question. There was an hour of debate over why in the world they would want me to preach against smoking, drinking, and dancing. And the bottom line was, and you often find this in, in, among some Christians, is that they viewed their their congregation as almost exclusively converts from the Roman Catholic Church. And their experience with the Roman Catholic Church is that it was just something you did in terms of genuflection on Sunday, but the rest of the week you could do whatever you wanted to. It was pure antinomianism. All you had to do was go in and say a few Hail Marys and Our Fathers, and you were good to go. And so there was no sense of any kind of accountability or moral absolutes within the the, the functional operation of Catholic Christianity in southern Louisiana. And so they had reached a conclusion that if you were going to have a testimony as a biblical Christian, you couldn't do anything that the Catholics did. (laughs) And so that meant that the pastor had to preach against smoking, drinking, and dancing continuously. I didn't quite come from that background. We didn't quite agree on those things, that smoking, drinking, and dancing were inherently sinful. And so therein we discovered a conflict. It was the most unusual thing. I preached the next morning on Sunday morning, went back as is typical in traditional churches. Pastor goes back to the back door, shakes hand with everybody as they leave. And everybody left. I have, I, I've preached in a lot of churches, been a lot of places, and had never, except that, that one church, not been invited somewhere for lunch. 
everybody left the church. I turned around. I was the only one left. I had no idea where to go to eat or where I was or anything. And so it was a very clannish, and that culture is, it's very clannish. But that was, that was interesting. There are places like that still today. There are places like that and Christian groups like that who have set up a rigorous code of conduct. And it may not, may be that those things that they have in their code of conduct are not necessarily wrong. It's that it's not a biblical code of conduct. They have come to convictions that are not necessarily uh, revealed or mandated in Scripture, and then this is where it's wrong. It's not wrong to come to convictions in the areas of these doubtful things. What's wrong is to come to convictions for your life in the area of doubtful things and then want to impose that on everybody else because God has not spoken with regard to these uh, these areas, and so we have to uh, we have to understand that there's room for disagreement among believers about these things because God has not specifically addressed them in His Word, and so they are neither uh, neither moral nor immoral. They are not spiritual uh, absolutes. And so Paul brings us to a discussion here. He focuses on two categories of Christians, the weaker brother, the weaker or immature believer, as we've seen, and the stronger or the mature believer. But as I pointed out last week, there's actually a third category not present in this particular passage, but we clearly see evidence of this third category in the Gospels, and that is the legalist or the Pharisee. And the issue here is how are we to live or how are we to deal with these these doubtful things when it affects a weaker brother, not a legalist. And see, we run into people like I did in that church in Opelousas, Louisiana, and their problem wasn't that they were weaker, it was that they were legalists. And they wanted to impose their their do's and don'ts on everybody else. So uh, the Bible clearly has certain do's and don'ts. And as we come to the second half of chapter 14, there are a number of do's and don'ts that the Apostle Paul lists. But just by way of review, here's a chart I developed last time on the three categories, the weaker brother, the mature brother, and the legalist. Uh, the weaker brother and the mature brother are both characterized by humility. They are seek to put themselves under the authority of God's word. That's the essence of authority. But the legalist is arrogant. He is imposing his moral standard as a grid upon the word of God. The immature believer is uncertain about what he should participate in. Is this good or bad? He's heard some people say one thing, some people say something else, but he hasn't had time to think it through for himself, and some of these areas may involve may involve a violation of his own conscience. He may have been brought up a certain way. The context here indicates that that the division between these two groups in the church in Rome was between those who were of a Jewish background who had been had the norms and standards of the Mosaic Law and the dietary laws and the observance of Shabbat and other feast days imposed and taught them, inculcated in them as they grew up. And now they're living surrounded by a Gentile culture. They've become believers in Jesus as Messiah. When they go to a Gentile home, suddenly they're confronted with food. 
that uh, they would not have eaten before. Somebody's wanting to serve them a, a BLT or maybe some fried shrimp or fried oysters, and that doesn't fit their uh, Levitical diet. So this is a problem for them. And if their conscience says it's wrong, how are they to handle this? And often they might be swayed into uh, going ahead and eating which in one sense wouldn't be wrong, but it's violating their conscience, and so it causes them to stumble in their Christian life. So the weaker brother's uncertain because he hasn't had time to study things through. The mature believer has studied the word. He has thoughtful convictions, but he holds them with humility, whereas the legalist has thoughtfully come to his conclusions, but he's holding them in arrogance and seeking to impose those on others. The weaker brother is uninformed. He's, he hasn't come to his position based on knowledge of the word. The mature believer has studied the word of God. He's uh, oriented to divine viewpoint, and he's open to correction if he's wrong. That's because of his humility. But the legalist is not open uh, to correction. Uh, one of the men that I was uh, deeply influenced with early in my Christian life when I was a teenager who really got me focused on the road to understanding the issues in creation and evolution was a graduate of Bob Jones. We have, I know we have at least one member of the congregation who's a graduate of Bob Jones who is not legalistic, but Bob Jones is sort of the... the um, paradigm of the legalistic Christian university, and uh, they have all manners of rules and regulations, and he had brought this with him, and he wouldn't let his kids watch TV or go to movies, and finally, as he spent some time after about 15 years in a grace-oriented environment, he actually broke down and allowed his wife to take him to see The Sound of Music. And he thought, well, maybe not all movies are bad. So uh, he, his humility finally began to develop. Uh, weaker brethren are grace-oriented as are mature believers, but a legalist is not. He's works-oriented. He's more concerned about a rigid code of conduct than he is truly understanding the Word of God and not comfortable with the fact that there may be some things that you can do under certain circumstances, but not under other circumstances. They want everything spelled out. The, the uh, weaker brother is easily influenced, and this may be a cause of problems for him. The mature believer and the legalist are not, not um, easily influenced. The difference is that the legalist is, is one to easily take offense. It's not that, that he is... Uh, that someone has intended to offend him, but that he has uh, chosen to be offended by something that was done in innocence. And so that's what characterizes. We'll come back, talk about that before we're done tonight. So there are four things that basically summarize the teaching, uh, or five principles, rather, that basically summarize the teaching in the first 12, cha- 12 verses of chapter 14. First of all, we have to distinguish between absolute commands in Scripture and areas where there is no specific command. And we have to distinguish between these areas of absolutes 
and areas of freedom. The scripture is very clear. Galatians 6 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The Apostle Paul clearly understood his freedom, but he also understood that under certain circumstances, he was not to exercise his freedom. So it's a self limitation. Uh, someone has once said that, that at times we have to say, well, others can do something, but I can't because of my position as a leader or because of someone else that may be in the, in the area. Uh, someone may wrongly influence. It's not ready to handle, uh, areas of freedom. And this was the problem that Paul deals with in both Romans 14 and the first part of 15 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Second, each believer must investigate and think through their own convictions in areas of freedom. If the Bible doesn't specifically address it, then each believer is, it's between each believer and the Lord as to whether or not they are going to uh, enjoy freedom or participate in certain activities or not. Uh, some of these are culturally determined. They are cultural taboos. There are things that may be accepted in some groups and not accepted as another. And part of this is just good matters, manners and being considerate of other people's beliefs, even though they may be wrong or you may think they're wrong, it's just being uh, considerate of them. So each believer, each one of us must think through and investigate these areas. In Romans 14.5, Paul says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. The issue there was, uh, again, emphasizes that this is probably a distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the Roman congregation. There were Jews who were still observing the, the traditional historical feast days. And they thought that that was important. And as we studied in Acts, we saw that Paul still uh, held a vow. We saw other things that that um, that they did, that Jewish believers did, but not because they felt it had a spiritual significance, but that this was part of their historical and cultural background. It was part of their their upbringing as as Jews, and so they observed Shabbat. They observed Passover, they observed uh, Pentecost, they observed the feast days because that was part of their historical background and it honored the Old Testament, not because the, it had spiritual value. So some believe that, well, we're going to continue to uh, follow the dietary laws because that's what we're comfortable with, not because it's made them more spiritual. And others, I've talked to uh, at least two or three Jews who the, who were raised Orthodox always ate kosher, and as soon as they became believers, the first thing they did was go have a ham and cheese sandwich. They wanted to exercise that freedom. So we have to think through those convictions and come to our own convictions, but where it gets into a problem is we, we start imposing that on others. We do have a liberty, 1 Corinthians 8 9 says, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul isn't saying you don't have the liberty to do X, Y, or Z. He's saying there needs to be uh, maturity involved in where and when it is exercised so that it doesn't become a problem for another uh, weak, weak, immature believer. We have rights, Paul says in 1 
Corinthians 9, 4 and following, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? That was a problem. Uh, also, uh, <clears throat> Paul was single. And and when he would go to these churches and he would teach, he would try to support himself through his tent-making uh, uh, in, uh, endeavor through that uh, and start a business, a local business to support himself. But the other apostles would bring along their wives and uh, their families and expect the local church to support them. And Paul was saying, neither is right or wrong. This is a, this is a gray area. This is a doubtful thing. Uh, this is a matter of opinion. There are, just as today, you have some pastors and some ministries who charge for tapes. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't charge for the teaching of the Word of God in order to have the financial resources to support the ministry. There have been many pastors and many ministries that Choose that path. There's nothing in the Bible that prohibits it. You also have others who say, no, I'm not going to charge for anything. I'm going to trust the Lord to provide and individual believers uh, to support, support the ministry. And that's great. These are individual decisions. Paul made the same kind of decision. He chose to remain single and not to become a financial burden to the, to the congregation. But he doesn't say the other apostles are wrong because they brought their families along and expected the church to support them. Both, he said, are legitimate. It's just a matter of personal choice. So that's 1 Corinthians 9, 4 through 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 29, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And even if we should do something, it doesn't mean we should always exercise that that freedom. So point number three, in areas of freedom, we must allow others the freedom to hold different convictions as firmly as you hold to your convictions and be comfortable with that and not impose your views on them or their conclusion on you, because this is an area of personal opinion, not an area of direct revelation. Fourth, we must exercise our freedom in love for other believers, being willing at times to restrict legitimate behavior when it might cause a spiritual problem for an immature believer. I want you to notice, it not because it might cause a spiritual problem for a legalistic believer, Jesus never modified his behavior because it, the Pharisees would take offense at it. What we see is Paul saying, modify your behavior if it will cause an immature believer to have a problem, not a legalistic believer. And a legalistic believer is not an immature believer. There's a, clearly a distinction made in Scripture. So this is definitely a part of the nature of what it means to love one another and to be willing to serve one another uh, through our own decision. We capitalize on our freedom when we can, and we limit it when necessary. And that term, when necessary, is very important. Fifth, our pattern is Christ. Uh, on the one hand, Christ uh, de- demonstrates perfect love, but on the other hand, he doesn't de- restrict behavior based on the legalistic and wrong standards of others. So what we saw last time was that there are four things that characterize the, the weak believer. 
He's weak in faith. He doesn't understand the word, but here it has to do not only with his content, but he's not sure what to believe. This is stated, and so he, even if he may think for a minute that it's okay to eat uh, non-kosher food or trafe food, then he, his conscience bothers him. So he's uncertain there. He's weak in faith. He's weak in knowledge because he hasn't been under the teaching of the Word long enough to truly understand what the new principles are for the believer in uh, the church age. So this was a problem Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and 7. He said, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. But somebody who's brought up in idolatry may still have the norms and standards in their conscience informed by a sense that, no, there's really something there. So the superstition and the, and the religion and the mysticism is so bred into him by his training that when he would go to the situation in, in, in 1 Corinthians, they would go to the temple and eat at the, uh, at the restaurant there, that was basically serving meat that had been sacrificed to idols. But for him, he can't separate the two in his thinking. So by going and participating in the restaurant there and eating that, it pulls him back into thinking as he did in his former life as an idolater. So that causes him to stumble. So he has to come to a firm conviction, and he doesn't have that knowledge yet. So he falters, he stumbles in his spiritual growth. A weaker brother is also weak in conscience. Difficult thing for un- us to understand. The conscience is the location of the norms and standards in your soul. So that you have a, a, an area of your soul that is, tells you what is right and what is wrong. And when you do something that is wrong, your conscience says, sends up a flare to warn you that you are on the verge of being out of bounds. The conscience functions like a traffic cop. Now, if the traffic cop is wrong, it's wrong because the norms and standards are wrong. But if you violate, even if the traffic cop is wrong and you disobey the traffic cop, you've still broken the law because you violated, you broke, you violated the respect for the cop. And what happens if you set up in your soul a pattern of violating the authority of your conscience, even if you and I would not think it was a biblical norm or standard, you're setting a precedent of rationalization and disrespect for your conscience. And that, in turn, will cause problems down the road in your spiritual life because you start training yourself that it's okay to say to your conscience, just go away and don't bother me right now. Whether that standard is right or wrong biblically, what Paul is saying is it's wrong to violate your conscience. So this is a foundation for what he is saying here. First uh, Corinthians 8.12, When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against, bre- uh, against Christ. And see, it's real easy for people to get impatient with weaker brethren who haven't quite figured it out yet. But that's the nature of being a child. And, and, and an immature believer is you haven't figured it out yet, and sometimes it takes time. So in terms of defining weakness, the weaker brother is a believer in Christ 
who because of his weakness in faith, knowledge, conscience, and will can be easily influenced to violate his conscience by the example of a differing mature believer. He's going to go along with something, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols or not observing the holy days, the Shabbat or whatever, uh, and he doesn't have a, the conviction for that in his own soul. So he's violating his own conscience, which it means, according to what Paul is saying, which puts the, the mature believer in the position of causing spiritual failure and, and promoting spiritual failure in the life of the weaker brother. In contrast, the stronger brother is a believer who understands his freedom in Christ. He understands the principle of grace, and he understands the doctrines related to the Christian life in the area of essentials and non-essentials, and so he exercises his liberty with a peaceful conscience without attempting to impose his views on others and is willing to limit his freedom when necessary for the benefit of the weaker believer. That term when necessary is so important because you can be with one group one day and you know that if I'm, if you're with that group that if you like to have a glass of wine, you're just not going to have a glass of wine. If uh, they don't like think that Christians should play cards or they haven't figured things out yet or they have a problem in just any number of areas, you're not going to make an issue out of that because it would just be a distraction. And so you're going to willingly limit your freedom in, in that particular area. I had a situation occur some years ago. I was involved with a... Uh, ministry with black pastors out in Southern California and was invited out to dinner with a two or three, two or three pastors. And, um, Wayne house was with me and we went out to dinner and we both ordered a glass of wine. And one of those pastors that was there, Baptist, black Baptist pastor really got his panties in a wad over that. Not there, but later on the rumors came back to us how, how offended he was. See, that's the legalist. This guy wasn't being, wasn't stumbling. We weren't going to cause him to, uh oh, to make it, and you know, I'm going to drink a glass of wine now. We weren't going to cause him to do something that violated his conscience, but he was imposing his views on us. The, uh, if we had been aware of his, situ- of his beliefs, then we would not have done something to create that problem. That's how the stronger, mature believer acts. He's willing to limit his freedom for the benefit of others. So when we talk about the conscience, it's the place where the norms and standards are located in the, in the soul. And as unbelievers, we fill up our conscience with a lot of standards that may not be biblical. And those standards don't change just because you trust in Christ. You have to have your conscience re-educated on the basis of Scripture. And so many norms and standards which are ingrained in the conscience of, a, of an unbeliever are biblically false. But that conscience is still his traffic cop. So the fact that he has these absolutes in his soul, that he has a conscience, is used by Paul to indicate, as an argument to indicate the existence of God in Romans chapter 2. He knows there are absolutes. Even though his absolutes are wrong, 
He, the fact that he knows that there's absolute right and absolute wrong is evidence of a creator who has made him in his, in God's image. And that part of his imageness is that he has, uh, the standards of right and wrong. Now, a weak conscience is one that has norms and standards that aren't derived from the Bible, but the person who has a weak conscience hasn't quite figured out how to, uh, how to redirect his norms and standards, how to re-educate his norms and standards. And so therefore, when someone with a weak conscience finds a rationalization which goes against it, uh, without biblical support, he then sets a precedent for violating correct norms later on. If you're violating your conscience, even if it's wrong, you set a precedent for violating it later on. All right, so let's go forward. Romans 14.12, Paul says, So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. The bottom line is we're accountable to God, not to each other in these areas. And so we're not to be spiritual policemen running around imposing our convictions in these areas of doubtful things or these areas of personal opinion on each other. We have to learn what is clearly stated from Scripture and what is not. Now, in the next section from uh, Romans 14.14 uh, 14 down through Romans 15.4, uh, Paul lists various do's and don'ts, and I thought that the way I would address this, rather than going technically verse by verse, is I would just summarize this by going through the different things that Paul says to do, and then the different things he says not to do. Actually, I'm going to address it the other way. We're going to start with the things not to do. He says, first of all, we're not to put a stumbling block in the path of a growing but weaker believer. We're not to do something that would uh, cause him to violate his conscience because of a lack of understanding or a lack of faith on his part. We need to develop a sensitivity there. In Romans 14:13, we read, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. This was the problem out of arrogance. The stronger believers were judging the weaker believers and say they just won't grow up not understanding the fact that they needed to, that maturity isn't a a rapid process. It takes time to learn and to study. So they were judging one another. The weaker brothers were sometimes judging the mature believers. He says, but instead of judging one another, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now we'll come back. When I finish these, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to put a stumbling block in a person's way. It is to create a trap that they fall into that causes them to injure themselves, as it were, spiritually. I always liked uh, Dr. Ryrie's comment when he talked about things like this, that, that in order to cause somebody to stumble, they have to be moving. And there are a lot of Christians who aren't moving. They just want to be critical and t tell other believers what they can and can't do. So this is clearly dealing with a young, immature believer who is attempting to grow and go forward. We're, second, we're not to destroy them with food. Verse 15, Romans 14, 15. Yet if your brother is grieved, that is, if this upsets him because of your food or because of your diet, uh, 
you are no longer walking in love. If uh, you are eating what he thinks you shouldn't eat, then you're creating a problem. You go out to eat, and you know that this is a uh, someone who is weak and doesn't understand the issues, and they don't believe you should eat pork, and you order a uh, BLT, then you're just creating a problem. You're not being sensitive to the situation. So Paul says, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. This is a, a brother in Christ. You're to help them, not hinder them. Third, don't let your good thing become evil. See, enjoying your liberty isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing, Paul says. But if you're doing it in a certain context where it hurts another believer, and you have to know that it is. It's not somebody who goes out to eat and they have a glass of wine and then there's somebody who watches them uh, around the corner and says, oh, I saw so-and-so having a glass of wine. I'm going to go have some wine. And then they go out and they get drunk. Uh, this is not that kind of a situation. It's talking about the fact that you're both sitting down together and you are personally engaged with uh, the weaker brother in a way where you might even go so far as to order a glass of wine for them, knowing that that would be a problem, or they have certain restrictions on their diet for, for what they believe are spiritual reasons, and you want to go ahead and force the issue, and so you order them a ham sandwich. That's, that's how you create that stumbling block. It's not that somebody just, just passes by and observes you enjoying your freedom. Uh, you can't, you can go too far with some of these, uh, some of these examples. So Paul says, don't let your good, it is a good, be spoken of as evil, but be willing to, willing to, uh, limit it. Fourth, uh, don't tear down God's work. God is at work building, maturing the, uh, the immature believer, and don't create a problem for God in the process. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. No matter how wonderful you may think that uh, it is to eat lobster and shrimp and oysters and to eat pork, and uh, pork sausage and ham sandwiches and bacon, it's not worth it to cause a problem in somebody else's spiritual life. Because as Paul will say in verse 17, eating and drinking is not relevant to the kingdom of God. We're going to have to come back and look at that before we're done. That's an important passage, but we have to understand that. Fifth thing, he says, don't give offense. Also in verse 20, verse uh, 1420, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Uh, all things are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. So if it offends him and he violates his conscience, you have been a, 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 you have aided and abetted him in his sin. Six, don't cause a brother to stumble. Verse 21, it's a it's it's good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So that's another principle. We have to maintain that distinction. And then seventh, don't do things just to please yourself without regard to others. For uh, Romans 15.1, we, we then who are strong ought to bear, and that word bear means to carry something. 
I think that it comes across a little better. We who are strong ought to put up with the scruples of the weak and not just please ourselves. Too often, mature believers might just get impatient with the immature believer. So in terms of the do's, what are we supposed to do? Well, first of all, we're supposed to walk according to love, Paul says. This is seen in verse uh, in Romans 14, 15. If your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. So what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be walking in love, making sure that we're, what we're doing is best for the person that we are that we are with at the time. We're to serve Christ. Uh, Romans fourteen eighteen. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So we are to serve Christ, and that means loving one another and being sensitive to their spiritual condition. We're to pursue peace in Romans fourteen nineteen. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace. This is clearly stated in several other passages in the Scripture, that we are to pursue peace with others and the things by which one may edify another. So a question we ask is, is this edifying and is this going to maintain uh, peace or harmony in our relationship? Fourth, we're to build up one another. Again, this concept is, uh, we saw in verse 19 just now, we're to focus on edifying one another, spiritually building one another up. Fifth thing he says to do, we're to put up with the weaknesses of the weak in 15.1. We are to bear those weaknesses, and that's a limitation for now, but as they grow and mature, it won't be, it won't be in the future. Sixth, we're to please our neighbor for his good. Paul says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So that becomes the standard. We are to help them along the road to maturity, not create roadblocks or speed bumps. Seventh, we are to edify the weaker brother. We can do this through conversation. We can do this through uh, encouraging them to read through certain material or to listen to certain lessons so that they can come to convictions on their own and grow to maturity. So having said all that, let's go back and look at a couple of passages that seem to be problems for some people. Verse 17, this is one of those passages that comes along in the New Testament every now and then, and somebody says, oh, well, well, you teach that the kingdom of God is future. You teach that the kingdom of God is not today. Well, it seems like this verse is saying that the kingdom of God is present because it's a present tense verb. So Paul is writing here that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a couple of things that we need to understand when we look at any verse that talks about the kingdom of God. Uh, First of all, we need to understand that a kingdom is characterized by three things. A kingdom requires a king. The king needs to be present. A kingdom requires a domain, and a kingdom requires a people. Now, what kingdom are we talking about when we're talking about the kingdom of God? 
When we go back to the Old Testament, we realize that there was the prophecy from the prophets that God would bring a kingdom upon the earth in the future that would be centered around Israel. The king of that kingdom was to be the Messiah, who was the, a, a human descendant of David, and that this Messiah would rule over a domain in the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He never changes those terms and that he would rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem over the descendants, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All through the Old Testament till you get to the end in Malachi, this is the understanding of the kingdom. When the New Testament begins in the Gospels, John the Baptist shows up on the scene and says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. He never redefines the term kingdom. It is what they were taught to expect in the Old Testament, and this is what is is announced by John the Baptist. When Jesus began his ministry, he says the same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he sent his disciples out, he sent them not to the Gentiles, but to the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of these have, are assuming the same meaning for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those terms are used interchangeably. And it was expected to be what the Old Testament predicted, a literal geophysical kingdom on the, on the earth. That that kingdom does not exist until Jesus returns from heaven to the earth to establish his rule on the earth. This is a fundamental concept. So when we come to a verse like this that may be a little difficult to understand for some, we have to understand that under the laws of interpretation and hermeneutics, the terminology must be defined in an obscure passage by the clear passages that are governed from all of the other passages in the New Testament. So obviously the kingdom of God must be a reference to this same geopolitical kingdom promised and prophesied in the Old Testament that is going to be established and won't be established until Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation period to establish his kingdom on the earth. And this will only take place at the end of the tribulation. In amillennialism... Jesus is now serving as king over a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom prom- the literal geophysical kingdom promised to the Jews in the Old Testament uh, is redefined in covenant theology and in amillennialism to mean a spiritual kingdom, that because the Jews rejected Jesus, God rejects them. This is part of uh, replacement theology that God rejects Israel and replaces them with the church so that the literal promises of a literal land and a literal king and a literal throne in the Old Testament are no longer literal, they are now spiritual, and Jesus is now sitting on the spiritual throne of David in the heavens. He is now ruling over a spiritual kingdom, which is the church, the body of Christ on the earth today. See, in amillennialism, that means no millennium, no literal thousand-year rule on the earth. And so in their theology, there's no future kingdom. We're in it right now. 
It is a spiritual kingdom now because the Jews rejected Jesus in the, in the Old Testament. But see, to get there, you have to quit interpreting the Bible on a literal, historical, grammatical basis. You have to interpret the Bible according to a spiritual or an allegorical uh, sense of the, of the Scripture. What we, the second point we have to recognize is that Jesus, according to the Scripture, is not now reigning as king. Uh, he is not referred to as the king of kings and lord of lords until he receives the kingdom. He is not the king of kings and lord of lords now. He hasn't been given the kingdom yet. And let's see how that is shown from Scripture. Uh, in Revelation seventeen fourteen, that's the first time he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and this just is right before the Battle of Armageddon as he is coming to establish his kingdom. Revelation nineteen sixteen, it's in the context of his coming at the time of the Battle of Armageddon when he comes to establish his kingship. We understand uh, when he receives his kingdom, based on Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus, as the Son of Man, that's who's being described in the passage. You have two people, two figures, let's say. In Daniel seven thirteen and 14, you have the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and you have the Son of Man. And the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom to the Son of Man. And Daniel is looking in these visions in Daniel 7 where he sees the vision of the future kingdoms of man, the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the Greek Greek kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. And then all of the kingdoms of man are destroyed by the Son of Man who comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. So as Daniel concludes what he saw in his vision. He says in verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, emphasizing the humanity of the Messiah, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. They brought the Son of Man before the throne of the Ancient of Days. Key word at the beginning of the next verse. Then, at that time, then to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. But see, Jesus right now is not receiving the kingdom. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. In Revelation 3.21, John writes to him who over, uh, overcome... Uh, Jesus is speaking here, as John writes, Jesus is speaking, saying to him who overcomes, that is the believer who perseveres in the Christian life to maturity, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, that's in the future, as I also overcame, that was in the, in the first advent, and sat down with my father on his throne. The only person sitting on a throne in Revelation until you get to uh, Revelation uh, 20 is the father. 
all through this period, up until the father gives the son the kingdom, the father, the, the son is sitting on the father's throne, which is that last line in the verse. But what Jesus is saying is that in the future, when I come in my kingdom, I will grant church-age believers the right to sit with me on my throne, which is in the future, just as in the past when I ascended to heaven, I sat at my Father's throne at his right hand. So this is talking about a future event telling us that Jesus is not now sitting on a throne that is his. He's sitting on the Father's throne. So this is all future. So when Paul writes this, he's telling us as believers, don't get all caught up in debates over what you need to eat and what you need to drink and um, what days of the week you should observe, if any, that that's not an issue in relation to the kingdom of God. What is an issue in relation to our future destiny in the kingdom of God is our development of experiential righteousness in terms of spiritual maturity, which is also related to peace in terms of peace within the body of Christ, because he states within this context we are to pursue peace uh, with the pursue the things in verse 19 which make for peace and the things which edify one another and joy in the Holy Spirit that when we are walking in fellowship we experience the joy and the happiness of God the Holy Spirit so verse 17 doesn't have anything to do with a present form of the kingdom or with a spiritual form of the kingdom and I really emphasize that because there are some folks in this congregation and some folks uh, related to some of you who've been going to one or two formerly doctrinally sound churches who are hearing this kind of preterism and already not yet view of the kingdom and these distortions that come out of ultimately a replacement form of theology. And there have been wolves in sheep's clothing who've taken over the pulpits in some of these churches and caused problems. Now, they're not directly affecting us as a congregation, except for the fact that we have family members here who are very concerned about parents or, or children who are, have been involved in those congregations and haven't had the doctrinal discernment to what, realize what has happened to them, and they haven't left those congregations. Now, in verse 18, uh, let's go on to verse 21 as another uh, key passage where Paul says, It's good neither to eat nor <coughs> meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. And the idea that we have here is that stumble is the word proskopto, which means to strike something or to hit somebody with something in order to cause them to fall down. And then the word offended is the word skandalon. The noun means to set a trap for somebody. That's the ultimate meaning of that word. And it's sometimes translated uh, to become offended. So uh, it's used at both actively and passively, but we see it in the passive sense in relation to the Pharisees who were offended when they heard Jesus. See, Jesus didn't offend them. Jesus taught the truth, but they reacted to it. They didn't like it, so they took offense. 
And that's what I was pointing out last week is we live in a culture today when all kinds of subgroups are getting offended, taking offense, when no offense is intended. Now, I fully recognize that there are people in this culture that are uh, that are racist, that have all kinds of problems and are offensive. But in many cases, what you have is minority groups that take offense when no offense is intended. We've lost our sense of humor. We've lost a sense of lightness and being able to joke with, with each other. When I used to work with um, with a lot of black pastors and black, black groups, uh, they, they used to joke. I could never joke back with them this way, but they would they, they would call me various things I won't say, but it was all understood to be done in fun. But if I had said those same things to them, that would have been, they would have taken offense. So it was clearly a one-way, one-way road. And um, it was quite interesting, but I'm not going to say some of the things they used to call me when I was, uh, when we were around. We had a lot of fun with it, but I was always careful to realize it had to be a one-way road, that if I reversed on that, then they would take offense. That's a problem we have today culturally. We take offense instead of just treating one another with grace uh, and in love. In 1422, Paul says, Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So you need to go along with your conscience. If you violate your conscience, it's still going to cause you problems when you ignore the traffic cop, as it were. You're still going to get a get ticketed in your soul, as it were. But the one who doubts is condemned if he eats. He's not condemned because he's doing something wrong by eating. He's condemned because by eating he's violating a norm and standard even though it's wrong, he's violating a norm and standard in his soul. And this is where Paul says, for whatever is not from faith is sin. He goes on then to say in 15.1, we then who are strong or mature ought to bear or are to put up with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Don't be self-absorbed in the process. The word there for bearing, for, for bearing with is the word bastadzo, and I think the best idea is you put up with it. They're immature, just like you put up with some of the silliness of your children because you know they're just children. And you'll wait to deal with the issues later as they grow up. And they're weak. They are powerless. The scruples of the weak. Uh, this is the word adunatas, meaning uh, they're, they're unable to do something. They're powerless or incapable of, of handling the situation yet because they're immature. And then in verse 2, Paul says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to his edification. We're not to focus on us. It's not self-absorption. It is to focus on the maturity and the spiritual growth of others. Why? Because our model is Christ. Christ did not come to this earth to do what gave him pleasure. That wasn't the issue. Did he have joy and did he have pleasure? Sure, but that wasn't his focal point. He said, and then there's a quote from Psalm 69:9: "The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me." This is taken from a psalm and is applied to Jesus. 
who's, who is taking the reproaches of God upon himself. He was reviled, he was hated, he was abused, but he didn't seek his own personal pleasure over his service to God. And in the same way, we are not seek, supposed to seek our personal pleasure over serving one another and serving Christ. And then we have the conclusion of this section in verse 4 and 4 through 6 for whatever things were written before that's the old testament were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So when Paul wrote this he's talking about the old testament. So when we finish Romans in the next month we're going to be going back to the old testament and we're going to go back to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We're going to get back into a wonderful period of the Old Testament, which has a lot to teach us. The first part of 1 Samuel deals with the period of the judges and their moral relativism, which is very applicable to uh, our period today. But they had a false solution for that. They wanted a monarchy on their terms, and this also has application for us. They sought a political solution without a spiritual reality. And then, of course, 1 Samuel ends with God providing the true solution through the type of the Messiah who was, who was David. So according to Paul, there's a lot for us as church-age believers to learn from a study of the Old Testament. So we'll get into a study of Samuel. And then Paul concludes in verses 5 and 6, Now may the God of patience and comfort... Notice how he emphasizes these two qualities of God patience, because as mature believers, we have to be patient with some of the wrong-headed notions of immature believers. We, so he, he emphasizes the patience of God, that just as God has been patient with us, we need to be patient with others. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. The emphasis here is on unity based on the truth of Scripture like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Christ is the standard, not us, not our opinions, no matter how well-grounded they might be. For the purpose, verse 6, that you may be with one mind and one mouth, so that there would be unity in the body of Christ and there would not be division over non-essentials. Paul clearly teaches elsewhere there should be division over essentials. But where they're non-essentials, we need to set those aside as not being relevant and focus on serving the Lord and glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next time we'll come back to get into the remaining part of uh, Romans 15, but we're very close to the end. And most of Romans 16 is Paul giving various greetings to friends and colleagues in Rome. So we are very close to finishing a study of Romans after almost four years. And like I said, then probably by October, we will be in First Samuel. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and help us to be mindful of the fact that we do have a responsibility for other believers, specifically those who are immature. We need to treat them with patience and love and kindness, and we need to recognize that they may have some wrong ideas, and we need not cause a problem in their spiritual growth, but recognize that they are going to grow uh, slowly but steadfastly, and we need to be 
uh, helping them and encouraging them and edifying them and not be focused on uh, asserting our own opinions and pressing those on others when they may not be ready for it. And, Father, we pray that we might always be reminded that we are to be gracious and kind and loving toward one another. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.